Testing, testing, testing. Can you hear me? This is Audible Autism. And welcome to another episode of Audible Autism, Interesting Questions and Interesting Facts. I am your co-host, Sarah. Unfortunately, Odo is not with us this episode, but instead we have Joel Herman, who is a stand-up comedian from Finland. Welcome, Joel. Hi, nice to be here. Um, so, a very interesting uh, combination of things. Would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about um, your background, um, how you got into stand-up comedy um, and possibly your autistic journey? Uh, sure, of course. Um, it's it's kind of a long-winded journey as to how I got into comedy, but uh, uh, I'll have to start at a very young age for that. Um, I've been doing music all my life, so I started playing music when I was about three. I'm 28 as we're recording this, um, so it's been a while. Uh, yeah, I started playing music when I was three and started kind of performing somewhat regularly uh, around that time as well. And then I uh, got into uh, heavy metal music, all sorts of like hard music when I was like 11, 12, started playing guitar, got into a few bands when I was a teenager. And that sort of uh, gave me an even bigger boost as to like wanting to uh, perform in front of people. And then uh, mm. just so happened that when I was maybe, I, I think I was 20 at the time, I reached a point where like two bands that I was in at the same time, like they both fell through and like, or we broke up. And mm -hmm. then uh, I was in a position where I wasn't going to be in front of people for quite a bit of time. And so at the same time, I started uh, becoming more and more interested in stand-up comedy through actually British panel shows on YouTube. That was one really? big thing. Yeah. Like Mock which ones? Stuff. Mock the oh. Week was a big one, um, and and also I start uh, started watching like stand up specials and all that, and um, and and through that I started to think like okay I like performing in front of people I like comedy one plus one equals two why not give this a shot but I was still shy enough that it took another year for me to do like anything related to that or I didn't get a spot or whatever. And actually, weirdly enough, it was easier to get a spot in English in Helsinki if you didn't know anybody because that was easier to Google. Um, so I, I did my first gigs uh, in Helsinki in English and uh, that was 2013. I was 21. That was late 2013. So it's been it's been uh, almost eight years. So <laughs> that's... Uh, that too has gone on for maybe a too long of a time, but uh, still, I'm I'm still doing this as much as we can in this crazy world right now. But uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Do Do you see yourself getting out of comedy? Um, not necessarily out of it, but uh, there there was a period of time where I did like closer to 200 shows a year, and that was a little too crazy for my liking. So I kind of. Uh, took steps back out of it and i took a break at one point for a few months but uh i i love this too much to to not like to to quit it altogether. but just like maybe 
kind of quality over quantity at this point. Uh, yeah, the autistic journey. Yes, do go ahead. Um, <clears throat> so my mom was quite young when she had me. Well, relatively young, like, you know, less than twenty-five, let's say. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, she has a master's degree in psychology, so she knows a thing or two about weird stuff going on in people's brains. And uh, then autism started to become uh, more of a topic in Finland in the 90s. And so at some point, like, she already knew that something was up because I was kind of like a, like, almost like a savant kid when I was like two, three. Like, I learned to read when I was two and do like pretty complex math when I was three and things like that. And I could memorize like, entire calendars and stuff like that like around that age too so like she knew that something was up and then she read something about autism or asperger's and like she was just like yeah this is it and um then when i was maybe 10 she started to talk about it uh with me kind of age appropriately saying like hey like we both know you're different and this might be the reason why so like if you ever want to see and get a diagnosis or something if it might help then you know just tell me and we'll we'll deal with it and then i was going to go to a different school at 13 um for seventh grade because that's how schooling works here and so when that was about to happen she started kind of egging me on a little bit saying like hey this could really help if we could get this piece of paper saying that you have this so Mm -hmm. i could show it to a couple of teachers you might get a little bit of help or something like that and then we could we could go on from there so then we went uh did a couple of sessions with some psychologists and uh the results came in saying like duh of course you have asperger's you know um so Mm -hmm. that's that's how it's been and uh with the comedy and autism it took me a couple of years to start talking about it but then i've never shut up about it and that's Mm -hmm. kind of led me to where we are right now that sounds um for for someone who was diagnosed in childhood that sounds uh empowering for for want of a better word the the way you're describing it did you find it uh, something that was um helpful to you uh yeah of course i think maybe it like putting a name on it could help in some ways, but I think that's only a little part of it. I think the the way that the whole parenting went on was it was a much bigger deal. Like the the point that my my mom and my stepdad and my dad to an extent as well like tried to do was kind of say like, hey, you have this thing, but it's not an excuse necessarily. Like you can't just like walk around on the streets with a you know, with a sticker on your head saying that you have autism. So like you have to like you have to cope it like in the outside world as well. And some things are going to be harder for you. Some things are going to be easier for you. And so like the thing that the things that are going to be harder for you, like we'll focus on those so that it'll be easier for you like in the future. Mm-hmm. And that certainly helped a lot. Like it was tough, but it helped. And how do you um, how do you feel about your autistic identity as an adult now? I mean, you said you talk about it a lot on stage. I think um, it's like I don't want to sound like a martyr or anything, but it's um, I I think I feel especially because I started getting um, any sort of like media attention for it um, maybe five years ago for the first time, like in a big way, uh, mm-hmm. and then. Like after that, I've started to feel like a sort of a sense of duty almost like because there aren't that many autistic voices. Like I know of a couple of others, 
like around here, but there aren't that many, especially because we're a pretty small country. So like I kind of want the autistic community to have a voice, you know, so like and if it's not me talking about it or giving a face to it and like, you know, being the potential punching bag for that, too, or just, you know, if I can help people in some way, then I should be the one doing it, because otherwise there might be a chance that there's not going to be someone else doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that sort of brings me on to the broader question of, um, yeah, I know very little about uh, how autism and autistic people are regarded in Finland. Would you be able to give us a, a, a bit of an overview for that? Um, for that sort of an overview, I would have to have like direct comparisons with another country. And not, I don't necessarily have that because I've lived here all my life. It certainly looks quite a bit similar to how, how a lot of other Western countries view that issue. Um, I think culturally speaking, we might be in a bit more delicate situation because of the fact that like traditionally Finnish culture, you don't talk about like any issues at all. It's not like we brush unpleasant things under, under the rug, like in some cultures you might do that, but we don't talk about any issues at all. So, um, it's, it's hard to kind of bring up anything because then you might feel embarrassed because like you're putting a spotlight on yourself or just, you know, you, you think that, or it, it might look the way that like you feel, you feel as though you deserve attention. Whereas that mm-hmm. that's like a big faux pas in, in the culture, but yeah, it, it has to be done kind of delicately. Oh, I see. So talking, talking about issues like mental health or, or being autistic is seen as attention seeking. Uh, speaking speaking about any sort of issues like that might be seen by some people it it might not necessarily be that way in reality but because of the way that like a lot of us have been raised like we feel that in like we internalize that and mm. so that could uh, prevent a lot of people from doing that when in like in reality the response that i've gotten for this over the years has been almost exclusively positive and is that from autistic people or or uh, professionals or it's it's people in general it it doesn't really discriminate in that sense but it's just like the more the stigma is more in people's heads i feel like both in talking about it and both in what they view uh, autistic people to be if they don't know anybody oh it, there's there's sort of a uh, uh, a lack of information such that they're completely open minded Yes, that's exactly that's much better than I could have ever said. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's really interesting because um, in, in the UK, you know, as knowledge of, of autism spreading, it's very much a, you know this is a thing that happens to children, and you know it's it's a, a disability that you know you have to sort of help the people with um, that kind of thing. So building sort of a more positive identity is is having to push away all of this uh, preconceived stuff but it doesn't sound like you have that problem in Finland. Uh, I guess the main issue right now is um, you know just uh, getting rid of some of the unnecessary stereotypes and also mm-hmm. the fact that autism has kind of become like the new I work as a substitute teacher every now and then so like I, I kind of see what's going on with uh, with regards to like what what are the latest slurs? And then I've seen that autist, autistic has kind of become the new big buzzword of the day, like on the playground. Um, it's kind of replaced the the F slur, for instance. 
I don't know how, but it just did. So I guess that kind of ties into uh, something I was going to ask you about um, the fact that you are, you know, bilingual. You speak English and Finnish, and I think some other languages. Uh, yes, um, Finland is bilingual uh, in general. So, like, we have to um, learn both national languages in school, which are uh, Finnish and Swedish. So uh, those two, uh, then English, and then I took a couple of other languages in school, which are pretty much non-existent at this point. And then I started studying um, Latvian as my major in university uh, last fall. So uh, there's quite a few, but like I, I'd say those three, you know, fin- Finnish, English, Swedish, in that order, in terms of fluency, that's that's kind of what I'm capable of. Yeah. So. I- just going back to your comedy um, and you saying that, um, you know, you had to take an English slot uh, in order to first get in. I was just wondering if what the what the difference is um, between doing comedy in Finnish and in English or if there are any differences. Um, certainly there are differences. I think personally, as you know, for me, uh, doing it in my own language is, of course, much easier because I can kind of. I mean, of course, everything is written to an extent, but I can kind of more like wing it a little bit more in my own language because then I don't have to like filter filter everything through and then translate it in my head and then speak. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can kind of be more in the moment with that. Whereas in English, I feel like it's more of a constructed set. And it, got, it it might feel a little stiff at times or like if I don't remember something, then I'm really in trouble because then I have to kind of, you know, go through the files in my head and see like, oh, OK, here, here, here we go. Like, here's the, here's how this this joke should be constructed uh, in terms of like the actual jokes and and all that. There are jokes that get lost in translation in both languages. And I think. Finnish is kind of more nuanced in a way like English is the kind of language where you construct sentences out of like smaller words and you don't like you have prepositions and all of that sort of stuff where like Finnish is kind of we we get a little more twisty with the words it's it's almost like a little bit poetic so it 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 lends itself to a lot of like wordplay and stuff like that it's really tough to explain if you don't know the language but that's how it seems to me would you uh, be able to give us an example of something being lost in translation? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. I, I will come back to that if I if I remember something. Absolutely, please do. Um, although that that does take me on to a question that I was going to ask you about um, uh, stage presence and and performance, because one of the things that you know autistic people um, do commonly have difficulty with is being able to react in the moment. Um, and I mean, does, is that the case? Like, have you found that? challenging on stage i think there are less and less surprises in terms of what can happen on a stage as you go on because you kind of run out of scenarios at some point but um of course there are surprises and i kind of like the surprise element too because like no two gigs are alike um and that sort of keeps uh, keeps you on your toes and also you know make sure that there isn't going to be like a moment where you just start like kind of reading it off the page and it becomes like robotic and stuff like that. Like I, I started noticing that at some point and it really scared the daylights out of me because I thought like, Oh no, I'm not enjoying this anymore. 
but then like i you know i went to like some dive bar to do a set and people started heckling and i was like okay this is different you know so you kind of almost want trouble sometimes but uh i guess i'm not the best when it comes to like um crowd reactions and like um you know crowd work and stuff like that but you know with 650 gigs or whatever i have under my belt like i've got some experience and i can deal with you know the most basic of things you know like mm. you know drunk middle-aged guys or something like that you know that's that's always easy it just takes practice yeah sure it, practice mm. repetition and you know um doing it in a bunch of different environments i think the best advice that i would give to any kind of comedian who really wants to get good at the stage presence stuff being be it an autistic person or not is just to do a whole bunch of different kinds of venues because that's uh you know that gives you a lot more experience than doing it um, you know, 50 times at the same place we'll ever do. Mm. Now, I know you said you've done a, a number of gigs internationally. Um, Correct, yeah. Is there a, a difference in the way audience audiences react to to things? Like, I I guess I'm more sort of, I, I mean, I know how English people react to humor. I guess I'm more asking about the, the Finnish sense of humor because you said that, you know, the language makes things much more nuanced. Um but what you know, you were saying that you do comedy in English to Finnish audiences as well. Is there, is there a particular style that Finnish people are into that sort of thing? I think uh, Finnish people like more. You know what? That also applies to British people. I feel like because we both uh, love. I, I think our sense of senses of humor are quite similar, actually, because we both like you know dark humor and also self-deprecating humor quite a lot. Mm-hmm. so that sort of style tends to work well um but also finnish people do love wordplay a lot but um when it comes to like the, how the audiences are i i feel like if you, if i do an english set in finland it's gonna involve a lot more international people as you would guess and i think they tend to be more animated because you know finnish people were kind of kind of you know quiet and calm and um reserved so um the the crowds aren't gonna be you know wildly you know clapping on their feet or whatever and i think you know most of most of the sets that i've done abroad have been kind of in the similar vicinities where like you know sweden or the baltic countries where it's kind of similar but still like once you step outside of finland it it tends to get a bit more animated a bit more interactive with the crowd and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing mm. it gives you more to work with sure and also like you get um instant feedback from the crowd too so you like you know if like if it's going well you really know it and if it doesn't then you also know that that's really interesting joel um i have a i guess i have a broader question i have a friend who's a comedian so i know a fair amount about um how the comedy circuit works but i was just wondering if you could explain for the benefit of our audience how one goes from sort of telling jokes in a playground to uh you know being paid professionally to uh, tell jokes on a, on a large stage with lots of people you know coming to see you to buy your dvd and how that actually works as a, a field oh god i wish i know the last wish i knew the last part um i've been <laughs> i've been paid but not well enough um and no dvds either the main thing is just to find opportunities to perform and 
at the beginning do it as much as you can it doesn't really matter even like like if the if the venues are are that good or not just like get to know other comedians you know networking do sets get better write a lot of a lot of material try it out see what works see what doesn't and you know find your own style i i think um john oliver um who like most people obviously know at this point um said it kind of the best when he said like like first you have to know like how to make an i'm, I'm paraphrasing but like uh mm-hmm. first you have to know how to make an audience laugh first you have to know how to be funny then later on you can decide how you're going to be funny like you first you just have to get the laughs somehow then you can kind of start developing your style once you get into that a bit more uh and then once that starts to develop and the jokes get better and better you you start getting better opportunities as you know more people and they see your sets and so on and so on you know it's a steady climb for most people it's not like you know you get some you're working at a dive bar for 20 people and then all of a sudden you get a golden opportunity and then next week you're performing for you know 2000 people it doesn't it doesn't work like that for 99.9% of the cases. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, steady, steadily getting better, steadily getting better. And there was a, there was a professional comedian here who said like, your reputation is six to 12 months behind you as a starting comedian. You know, like if you do great sets now, then you'll see it like where in terms of like where you can work, like, in six months or a year and this is this is um all stand-up comedy um how does that relate to i don't know comedy writing or uh panel shows or or, or that kind of thing like what's the the interplay is it the same people is it different people uh i wouldn't know too much about it um my my tv appearances have been just like me performing stand-up and you know one of them's coming up between this recording and when this episode comes out i i would assume based on what i've heard uh a lot of the people like working in panel shows and stuff like that who are like established stand-up comedians would then go on to do those shows they still write most of their material and you know they'll be able to know in advance like what the topics are going to be and stuff like that so they can kind of write material on that and it's sort of similar but it's just like sitting down and then people are talking over each other and all that and then there's that sort of live element of it whereas just a stand-up set is more of a constructed effort and takes more time I guess sort of the final question I wanted to ask you in this vein is, um, as an autistic person, is there a way that you approach comedy that's different to neurotypical people? I've I've seen a clip of Hannah Gadsby um, and she had what I thought was, um, you know, I think all comedy sets are constructed, but it it did seem like she had a much more explicit structure. And I was just wondering if you knew or if you do um have uh, a particular way of writing that could be described as being autistic or whether you, you largely do it the same as everyone else uh i don't know i'm not privy to a lot of other comedians this, uh their their how they write sets so i would know the difference between mine and them i guess my i, mm-hmm. I guess there isn't much of a difference I guess mm-hmm. just the whole premise of stand-up comedy, if you're talking about a variety of topics, is that the audience wants to see how you view those topics. Mm-hmm. So in in terms of that, I guess it's going to be autistic writing because it's written from my perspective. It doesn't matter what the topic is. So it's always going to be autistic writing. But in regards to how it's different in in terms of the whole comedic process and how that's different from me 
uh, versus a neurotypical comedian, I don't think it's going to be that much different. I think that's a great point. Everything you do is going to be autistic. So I just um, I noticed on your guest questionnaire that you said that you were quite into uh, Formula One. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so I just wanted to ask you a question about that. Uh, it's very interesting that you wrote down about Formula One that to an outsider, it just looks like cars going in circles, but the teamwork, technology and strategy involved makes it so much more multi-layered. And I was just wondering uh, if you could give us a rapid rundown of the layers that are involved in appreciating Formula One, because I have myself always sort of thought of it as not really understanding why people are enjoying waiting for a car to come around a corner. Right. I think there are layers to it. And like, personally, uh, one of them is the fact that I come from a motor racing family as well. So I've always had a soft spot for cars. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the fact is that these are pro athletes who are in as good of a shape or better shape than let's say a lot of football players and so it's not just like you know any any dude who can just like climb into a car and uh, drive it around it it doesn't work like that then like first of all you have that then you have people like hundreds of people working on the most minute details of these like multi-million pound you know racing machines and they work on it day and night in these like huge factories and all of that and all for just a fraction of a second of a difference and then on top of those things you have you know hundreds of millions of fans around the world watching this and then when it's when it comes time to be on the actual racetrack you have dozens of people working like on the pit lane working on strategy trying to make sure like how to get from point a to point b uh in the quickest time possible which not which isn't always you know uh drive as fast as possible and then you'll get to the finish line first that's quite often that actually isn't the case there's a lot of sometimes it's almost like chess on wheels and then if you add like you know safety car periods or rain or whatever else then it becomes so much more complicated and then those people will have to change strategies on the fly and then it can really flip and like the things like that there's like if if you look at it on a surface level you you'll see cars going around but if you look deep into it and then you start seeing like patterns like i remember i was watching a race this was like maybe one and a half years ago i was watching with a couple of friends who didn't know much about formula one And then uh, there were two cars battling for first position with maybe 20 laps to go or something like that. And then the car behind went for a pit stop and changed tires and was like 25 seconds behind the other car. And then it was like, oh, no, what's going to happen? And then the lead car went around for one more lap and didn't pit and kept on and still had that 25 second difference and i told my friends like oh the car behind is gonna win and they were like what are you talking about it's 25 seconds behind there's no way i was like you'll see and then like three laps before the end the the second car passed the first car and went on to win the race how come like you it it was better strategy Mm. why was it better strategy because uh the other car had um tires that were going off so they were losing a lot more time than was than uh, there was to be gained from like pitting for new tires, but because the other car didn't pit for the new tires, like right after the the first car, it was already too late because they would have lost that position and w- went behind the other car. So when they didn't pit right right after the first car, it was like okay, there's now too much of a time difference. They're gonna catch up and they're gonna win. 
Wow, you need to to uh, actually have quite a lot of knowledge to properly appreciate Formula One. I did not exactly. Know. So, so like that's that's what I meant. It's like it, like on the surface level, as cars going around, when you know more stuff, then you start seeing like these things, and you can kind of start guessing things or like predicting or like seeing how everything works. Okay, Joel, is there um, any way that uh, people listening to this episode can find out more about you um, that you'd like to direct them to? Um, sure. I've got, um, I deleted my Twitter because Twitter is a cesspool of hate, uh, but uh, I have a Facebook page and I have an Instagram and mm-hmm. my Facebook page currently is titled um, Joel Herman Artist. So you can go to facebook.com slash Joel Herman Artist. Uh, also that's the name of my Instagram handle. So it's easy to find. And, uh, I post somewhat semi-regularly. They used to be titled, uh, Joel Herman comedian, both of them, but, uh, I'm starting to do music again as well. So you can kind of find, uh, both of those things under the same umbrella because there's not a lot of content to be had during pandemic times. So I'm trying to do as much as I can. No, although hopefully by the time this says uh, that will not be the case um and you're you're uh, open to bookings absolutely i am um you can find my email address on my facebook page and you know if if you want to book me go ahead i can do online gigs as well and i've done them for companies and stuff like that and so i'm available for that as well or if you just you know have something to ask me you can send me a message Fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Joel. It's really interesting to hear from someone uh, in a field that isn't known as being uh, an autistic profession. So that that was really interesting and enlightening. Um, Is there a final message that you would like to uh, give out or a joke you would like to tell um, to the audience? Not necessarily. I think um, just especially in these times where, you know, it's all a bit rough. I've come up with somewhat of a good motto and it kind of times to comedy as well so like uh whatever you do in life try to have uh, as much fun as possible and try to make sure that others have that possibility as well that's my message thanks very much joe That was Sarah's interview with Joel. Hope you listeners enjoyed that. If you would like to listen to other interviews or other episodes that the podcast has done, look through your regular podcasting services or Spotify. Till then, have a nice day. If you would like to stay in touch with us, you can check out our website at www.audibleautism.com for links to things discussed in the episode and for our back archive. You can subscribe to us on most podcast distribution platforms, including iTunes. Just search for Audible Autism. This podcast is part of a larger project, The Autistic Empire, which is aiming to create an autistic community centered around our interests as autistic people. You can check us out at www.autisticempire.com. We post all of Audible Autism's episodes to our Autistic Empire channels, so you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we're even on Pinterest. Just search Autistic Empire to receive news and updates. 
We also have a forum where enrolled citizens can discuss the latest episodes and other issues of interest to autistic people. So do check that out as well. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us to be on a future episode of Audible Autism, you can always email us at team at audibleautism.com. Thank you for listening.